Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, what are those monks over there doing? They carry torches and banners, they chant, walking with their heads low. One carries a large jar, and one in the back is even carrying a pair of shoes? Hermit, they are holding memorial for their late companion. The torches guide the deceased man's spirit. The banners help him know where he is, and offer him protection from demons and ghosts. And the shoes, well, the shoes are self-explanatory. Does the spirit of the dead man really need all that help? Does he really need his shoes now that he is but ash and bone? Don't you need yours, though you have feet? Don't you need light, though you have eyes? Don't you need concentration, though you have a mind? I wonder if this fellow might need those things now more than ever. Fair enough. I hope they help him on the start of his new journey. Hermit, look. We've come upon the Charnel grounds. Here the newly dead are ritually tended to by the living. Or is it the other way around? Hello, and welcome to Bright on Buddhism. This week's episode, we will be discussing the fundamental beliefs of Buddhism, perspectives on the afterlife, if there is any afterlife in Buddhism, and the textual tradition. We will look at how these fundamental beliefs are related to these perspectives of the afterlife, and how these are organized in the texts. I hope you enjoy. So, let's get right into it. What are the most fundamental beliefs of Buddhism? That's a good question and a difficult question to ask. I would say that in a word, the most fundamental beliefs of Buddhism can be boiled down to the Dharma. We've used that word before, and we've discussed how many different meanings it has and how it can get pretty complicated to figure out which one is at work in context. But in this context, I would say that Dharma refers to a number of absolute truths about the universe and about reality and human life that Buddhists believe that one can come to an understanding of through meditation, practice, and renunciation. These truths include, but are not limited to, the three Dharma seals that we discussed in episode one. Uh, these are emptiness, impermanence, and suffering. Since these are so critically important, I think that it's good to spend a little bit of time here to discuss them, even though we've mentioned them before. So suffering in Buddhism is an English translation of the Sanskrit word dukkha. This word does not just refer to intense sadness or distress or negative feelings. More accurately, it feels, it feels like it refers to the absence of satiation. Satiation refers to what the mind would experience if anything was ever permanent and unchanging. Um, and to that end, intense happiness is suffering because it is fleeting and we can never have enough of it. And intense sadness is the same because it's the absence of happiness, and it comes when happiness goes. So this is something that's a little bit more nuanced than just negative feelings, or distress, or tense times. I, Based on what I'm seeing, it feels like a better word might be anxiety rather than suffering, perhaps? I think so, yeah. I think so, because suffering is directly related to its cause, which, according to... Buddhism is desire. 
And anxiety is related to desire in a lot of ways in that one is anxious that they will not have what they want or that they will have what they don't want. And that's a desire for things to be a certain way. And this truth of suffering is just related to the fact that things are not always the way that we want them to be. Yeah. The word suffering brings forth a pretty melodramatic idea in my and the way I use it. And I'm not sure that Dukas that dramatic, I guess. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, like I think suffering is too strong a word for what's going on here. I think it is, yeah. And I think that because this word has been translated into English as suffering, that has led to some of the Western-centric misconceptions that Buddhism is very nihilistic and very yeah. fatalist because they because one of the English translations of one of the noble truths is that everything is suffering. And whenever you don't have any context for that statement, it can really feel like they're saying that everything is always bad all the time. And I don't yeah. think that that's what this is saying. No, it isn't. If extreme intense happiness falls under the word dukkha, then suffering is not the right word we should be using because there's like intense happiness doesn't work as a possible state of suffering in English, at least like now I'm sitting here thinking that this is almost a mistranslation because that's not what I think of when I think of suffering. I would agree. And I think that we're going to run into a lot of these types of mistranslations that are not, I wouldn't say that they are all fundamentally incorrect, but I do think that they are misrepresentations on the grounds that they want a one for one translation, one yeah. word in Sanskrit for one word in English. And that's possible. That's possible in a lot of, in a lot of um, different context because Sanskrit is in the same Indo-European family of, of, of languages that we have Latin and that we have other languages in, but it just doesn't always work because these are very, very deep conceptual terms that not only are they perhaps inaccessible culturally to modern English, but they are also inaccessible temporarily. Because this is a term that was being used and thrown around in the texts now 2,500 years ago. Yeah. And I think that there's a little bit more unpacking that needs to be done with that. And maybe maybe the field of scholarship and the, the field of popular Buddhism would be aided by coming up with a more nuanced way to refer to this concept than just going for the easy target, suffering. Now, of course, that presents all kinds of other complications because the phrase absence of satiation or the phrase anxiety, those things, not only do they have their own connotations, but they also function differently grammatically than the word suffering. So yeah, it's a complicated issue. But let's uh, look at the next two seals that we've discussed before. The next one is impermanence. So because things are always changing and because things they don't persist in a 
eternal type of way. They persist in a temporary way, but not an eternal way. This is where we get our desire from. And this is where the suffering arises. Or I guess we could say now the anxiety or the absence of satiation. Because we want something permanent. We want patterns that are going to repeat themselves. We want structure to an unstructured reality. And because it's unstructured and because it's always changing and is nebulous, we have the truth of impermanence, the second Dharma seal of impermanence. Now, we've talked about how impermanence is related to emptiness before, and it would be good to run back over that just a little bit. So impermanence speaks to the process of change that we can see all around us. Whenever you plant a seed, if you come back in a couple of weeks, depending on the plant, you'll see no more seed and a whole lot more new green. Emptiness does not speak to that change directly, but it is implied by that change. Emptiness is the characteristic of dharmas in this context, meaning constituents of reality or instances of reality, stuff that can be perceived. Um, emptiness refers to the fact that dharmas don't have any substantial existence. Now, this is commonly formulated in English as the following phrase. If there is nothing that does not undergo change, then nothing has inherent and substantial existence. Now, that's got a lot of negatives in it, so we'll have to unpack it. But yeah. that's kind of the essential formulation of emptiness. I would also say having my when we talked about this script this was a sentence that really stuck out to me this f at this point feels like a claim that needs more evidence than i've seen like this is stating a claim and support this claim a little bit i think because nothing does not undergo change but i don't see how that goes straight to the idea nothing has inherent and substantial existence. Given a specific moment in time, duh, like we, we've used the example cup before, where it was once dirt and then it gets turned into ceramics and then it becomes dirt again. But in the times, in, the, in a specific instance of time, like, you know, a given millisecond, that cup is either a cup or dirt. During that time, how is that not substantial existence? That's a good question. And it relates directly to um, the philosophical context in which this teaching arose. So there's an important sutra that I'll include in the suggested readings and resources for this episode where um, a king goes to all these different teachers and he's asking about like, what is the nature of reality? What is emptiness? What is this? What is that? And he's posing it in very, very simple, but also kind of very enlightened ways. And eventually he comes upon these different teachers who are arguing for things like atomism. Atomism is where it's kind of like the opposite of Buddhism, where they say, instead of nothing has inherent existence, they actually say that everything does have inherent, substantial, permanent, eternal existence, and 
it can be boiled down to atoms that just reconfigure over time. So if we use the cup example, then of course there's some kind of atom, let's call it let's call it carbon, in the dirt. And these atoms of carbon reconfigure into the shape of dirt, reconfigure into the shape of cup, of ceramics, and then back to it again. And on one hand, there is good evidence for that. The Earth is mostly a closed system, meaning that the, the atoms and the materials that we have in our little ribbon of atmosphere around the, around the surface of the Earth, that's pretty much what we've got. We don't really have all that much new except from asteroids sometimes, and not much leaves except for sometimes heat energy, except for space launches, etc. Overall, the point is like more or less, these are, this is what we have and we've got to work with it and reconfigure it and make do with it. Right. However, the reason the Buddha would contest this atomism claim is that there is no evidence that carbon itself has existed for eternity or will exist for eternity. And there's no evidence that at least 2,500 years ago, there was no evidence that carbon was not undergoing change whenever it was in the form of dirt and then be reconfigured to the form of cup, etc. So because he penetrated down beyond the atomistic level, he couldn't really find a good reason to think that there was some kind of like fundamental kernel of reality that actually was real and substantial and truly, truly existed. And if it was, he, he probably thought that it was beyond the senses, beyond human or even godly comprehension. And that led him to this conclusion about there is no permanent or inherent or substantial existence. There's really only causes and conditions and the results of those causes and conditions. So this is some a place where my science and engineering background comes into play. I once upon a time I was a software engineer and also I spent a lot of time learning other sciences just because I was interested in them. And you with the example of atomism atoms aren't really considered the building blocks anymore. You've got the more fundamental particles, right. you know, protons, neutrons, electrons, and even those change once in a while. Antimatter is a thing that is possible. And when they collide, you get something, you, you get an explosion. Right. And those atoms go away. So e even if you go down to the atomic level, even if you go down to the subatomic particles, and that's the point where my understanding is at its limit, because I am aware of even more fundamental particles like the Higgs boson and that kind of thing, but I don't know the science behind those at all. But so I know a guy who does. I literally play a tabletop game with a nuclear physicist. So Oh, wow. Yeah, he's cool. And he will tell you about atoms. He likes he has he knows a lot about atoms and he will tell you that they do occasionally change. Right. But they're still there. I don't see how things changing doesn't mean they have substantial existence. Right. That's a good question. So 
this speaks to two important points. The first is relative continuity. So things changing but still being there is this relative continuity that we can see. So even though the Buddha posits that all things are always changing all the time, he doesn't dismiss the fact that you can get from A to B in some pretty concrete logical ways. Causes and conditions necessarily bring about their results. So there are some constraints, meaning that there is, there's nothing that's really completely, totally, statistically random in this impermanence sort of equation. It's, it's rather that impermanence is a constant process. So he doesn't posit that that dirt will skip the step from becoming ceramics to becoming a cup and just flash from dirt to cup. What he posits is that it won't ever just stay dirt. The carbon and the nitrogen will become plants or it'll be altered and become ceramics and become a cup or what have you. Even though it changes forms, it's still pretty logically constrained to what it can become, so to speak. Causes and conditions necessarily bring about their respective results. But if you zoom out beyond this dependent origination schema that gives us this relative continuity, you start to see like, okay, you start to see the world the way that the Buddha saw the world as, okay, even though there is this relative continuity, there's still nothing that really exists in an unchanging manner for all eternity. There's nothing that is substantial enough to not undergo change and reconfiguration. And if it's all undergoing change and reconfiguration, then what is there really that's undergoing all of that change and configuration? Is there really something there? Or rather, is it something that is just perceived? Is it something that is being maybe projected from our minds out into the world? Is it something that is truly, truly, truly eternal, permanent, substantial? Or is it something that arises? One of the postulations of emptiness is that if something arises, then it falls away. And if it arises and falls away, then it is constrained by the truth of emptiness. If it can arise and can fall away, it must just be imaginary in the sense that it is only perceivable by the senses and doesn't exist beyond beyond human perception, beyond samsara, the, the realm of rebirth, the, of, of birth and death, or even beyond our own concept of eternity. So it's really penetrating the deeper levels of what actually is there. So there's this extreme between there is nothing at all, which the Buddha disagrees with, and there's this extreme of everything is. Everything exists. And the Buddha doesn't agree with that either. Rather, he found this middle way where nothing is substantially existent, but we can experience relative continuity. So to perhaps try to rephrase this sentence, the original sentence is, if there is nothing that does not undergo change, then nothing has inherent and substantial existence. 
seems like it's kind of saying the same thing twice after you unpack that second clause. It's just saying no nothing does not change, therefore nothing does not change. Or am I misunderstanding? No, I I think that you've got it. I think that you actually have have reached the understanding of emptiness. That's kind of what we want to what we want to deliver with this with this section of the podcast. It's this if then statement helps it make sense in a Western Eurocentric philosophical uh, tradition, but it it really does say the same thing. These three Dharma seals, they're actually really one truth. And it takes a lot of understanding and meditation and reading and studying and thinking yeah, to get there. Uh, I definitely need more because being told I was correct there was not what I was expecting. So <laughs> I am terribly confused. Uh, Emptiness but, is a tough one for sure. I'll meditate on it. <laughs> well... So that's that's a hard one to wrap one's head around, but let's get back. Like that's something that I think I need to ruminate over. I think I hope you do, and I hope that our listeners do as well, because that one comes up more, and we'll we'll discuss it more in different contexts and make it make sense more. But it's important because it is probably the most critical teaching, in my opinion, in Mahayana Buddhism. Now, it's still important in other schools of Buddhism as well, but um, I think that it's extremely critical in East Asian, specifically Mahayana Buddhism. And it comes up in the literature and the art and a lot of the different artifacts of culture that come up in history in those areas that are related to Buddhism. So one other teaching that is not one of the Dharma seals, but is important to mention because a lot of people think that they're familiar with it. While there are many other teachings that are important, too many for one episode, I, I would like to call attention to one that's not one of the Dharma seals, but I think it, it's important because a lot of people are very familiar with it or think they are. It's karma. So they, th they think that it simply means what goes around comes around. And that's partially true. But in Buddhism, it's a lot more complicated than that. We will give a much longer, more in-depth discussion of karma in the future in a different episode. But suffice to say that karma is more than just one individual's actions in their own individual specific lifetime. It's actually shared among all sentient beings, and it goes beyond one individual's life, and it goes beyond the 80 years or so that a human being gets if they're really, if they're lucky and healthy. It actually spans infinite lifespans, infinite rebirths, and infinite sentient beings across time. We'll get more into it later, but I think that that's an important introduction to what karma is in the context of Buddhism versus what people think they might know about karma from these mistranslations, misrepresentations, and Eurocentric, Western-centric filters on Buddhist philosophy that they might have gotten from these self-help books and these New Agey type of things. So, next question. Does Buddhism have an afterlife? Yes and no. So, most Buddhists believe in a cycle of birth and rebirth, 
we we've talked about the six realms of rebirth in Mahayana Buddhism. Sometimes there's also there's ten instead of six, and all of these realms are called samsara, which is the Sanskrit word that refers to the realm of suffering or the realm of dependent origination, the realm of karma. It's it's where we are now. Whenever a Western philosopher says reality, a Buddhist hears samsara. So quick question, when you say realm of suffering, is this the same word dukkha before that we were saying might be not great word for suffering? It's actually the realm of dukkha and the realm of the opposite of dukkha, which we didn't talk about, which is sukkha, or often mistranslated as bliss, or as equanimity, or as satiation. Yeah, I was about to ask about, we've talked, we said the word satiation several times, and I was thinking that's where, that that's what would be the opposite of dukkha. Exactly, yeah. So samsara includes that as well, because it's possible to achieve enlightenment. So samsara is not all bad because samsara is the realm in which sentient beings reach enlightenment, in which they become bodhisattvas and buddhas, in which they do good actions on others and bestow merit and joy and happiness and wisdom on other people. So it's it's not all bad, um, but it does refer to this realm of rebirth that we exist in now main thing I was looking for there is like, is this the same word? It is. Because, yeah, that's, that word, that translation requires nuance. Absolutely. It's the realm of dukkha and the realm of sukha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we're talking a lot about the tenets of Buddhism and the like, but we haven't really talked about where they come from. So does Buddhism have a Bible? It actually doesn't. There is no single book or single collection of texts that Buddhists study. Rather, there's a number of canons containing tens of thousands of sutras and essays and commentaries. Some of you might have heard of the Pali canon, the Taisho canon, other canons. I know that Docs has heard of these. Mm -hmm. And different schools of Buddhism emphasize these different canons, and there's a lot of overlap between them. I would say that the Buddhist canon is one of the most complicated historically and shares a lot of overlap with a lot of different canons. And the reasons why some canons might be included or not included are wide and varied. But suffice to say that um, Buddhism has one of the largest textual traditions of any religion on earth. And what is also important to note is that unlike the Judeo-Christian canon or other canons you might be familiar with, the, the Buddhist canons, they include texts and essays and commentaries by people other than the Buddha. So the, the Pali canon or the Taisho canon these don't pretend to be all the word of the Buddha. It's actually words of the Buddha recorded by his disciples, but it's also words of monks, words of scholars, words of patriarchs of different schools of Buddhism. And all of those are included and studied because these, these patriarchs and these disciples are well-respected. In our longer episodes where we read from sutra texts, uh, we will 
be pulling from these poly cannons and these Taisho cannons and other cannons. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you join us next time where we discuss questions like, what are the moral tenets of Buddhism? Does Buddhism believe in the existence of a soul? And how does this belief about a soul or about morality relate to karma, which we've introduced in this episode? I hope to see you next time. Thank you. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Our email is bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Bright Buddhism. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.